And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So, and you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Yeah. You should listen, Senator Lindsey Graham. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't, but we're working I'm on it. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, big fires in New Mexico, please be careful. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to get uh, straight to my guest as soon as possible here today as the conversation uh, may, we'll find, may, maybe, maybe slightly uplifting. <laughs> Given the rest of everything in the news of late, not that everything else is not fantastic and uh, <laughs> puppies and rainbows, rainbows and kitten farts, yes, <laughs> there I you know. go. But there may be one. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Did you say kitten farts as I the first did. thing you ha- uh, had to say today? Rainbows well and done. kitten farts. Well, okay. Well, anyway, uh, one of the bright spots uh, these days among all the dark news is the continuing growth. Of organized labor unions uh, at large and small companies alike across the country. That's one bright spot that we actually uh, can look at and is really getting lost in all the coverage of everything else. Because there's a lot to cover. Yes, uh, first, there definitely uh, is. Uh, very quickly, a couple of uh, follow-up points I want to make on, on the news earlier this week that the GOP's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court appears now on the verge of ending freedom for women's reproductive rights uh, by overturning Roe v. Wade, I wanted to share a part of Barack and Michelle Obama's eloquent statement that they put out in response to the news earlier this week uh, when the uh, news of Sam Alito's draft opinion leaked to Politico, because I think 
Uh, part of it, at least, helps to underscore why Justice Alito's leaked opinion is just so incredibly out of touch, not just with the American people who support Roe v. Wade, but with decades of jurisprudence and American legal precedent when it comes to the so-called unenumerated rights in the U.S. Constitution, such as for the right to an abortion, as established by the uh, landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. That was based on a right to privacy, which is also an unenumerated right. Nowhere in the Constitution does it mention the word privacy or abortion. But the courts have decided that the American people still have a right to privacy. Just to help you respond to, to those you know that you will hear say, hey, we're in the Constitution. Does it say anyone has a right to an abortion? Well, there's a whole lot of stuff that the Constitution does not explicitly name. So uh, in part uh, from this uh, statement from uh, President Obama and uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, uh, they write, quote, few, if any, women make the decision to terminate a pregnancy casually and people of goodwill across the political spectrum can hold different views on the subject. But what Roe recognized is that the freedom enshrined in the 14th Amendment and the Constitution requires all of us to enjoy a sphere of our lives that is not subject to meddling from the state, a sphere that includes personal decisions involving who we sleep with, who we marry, whether or not to use contraception, and whether or not to bear children. And as we discussed a bit with Jessica Mason Piclo about all of this uh, on the broadcast a few days ago, that I think was the day following the leak of Alito's draft opinion, it is all of those rights that are, in fact, next on the chopping block if Roe fails. All of them because they are all protected under this right to privacy that was sort of carved out of the 14th Amendment. Marriage equality is not mentioned in the Constitution, nor is the right to even buy contraception without government interference, an unenumerated right that was established in 1965's Griswold v. Connecticut, which was, in fact, the precursor decision to Roe v. Wade. If the right to an abortion isn't valid, as Alito argues in his draft opinion, because the word abortion appears nowhere in the Constitution, then neither is the right to contraception or to marriage equality or even sex with someone of the same gender, or even sex with someone of an opposite gender who you're not married to. All of that is carved out of this sphere of privacy found in the 14th Amendment through years of uh, you know court rulings, court decisions. These were all part of the same sphere of privacy and freedom enshrined by protections of the 14th Amendment over decades by the courts. If you do away with Roe, eh, you may as well do away with all the rest. And no, just because Alito says nothing in this opinion should be construed as having anything to do with anything other than abortion, that is decidedly not how our court system works in this country and never has been. And Alito certainly knows that, but he clearly does not care. 
Back to the Obamas here. Uh, As the court has previously determined, our freedoms are not unlimited. Society has a compelling interest in other circumstances, for example, in protecting children from abuse or people from self-harm. And the framework constructed by Roe and subsequent court decisions allowed legislatures to impose greater restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy. But this draft decision, they write, does not seek to balance these interests. Instead, it simply forces folks to give up any uh, constitutionally recognized interest in what happens to their body once they get pregnant. Under the court's logic, state legislatures could dictate that women carry every pregnancy to term, no matter how early it is. I was reading a heartbreaking story this week about a young girl who turned out was 11 years old. And uh, the doctor uh, found that, in fact, she was pregnant and discovered that it was a case of incest. Alito would have uh, the states be able to tell that young 11-year-old that she is forced to bear. She'd be forced to. uh, And it could actually prevent her from being able to have children ever again. Correct. All of the above. That's now up to the state. That's now up to big government if Republicans have their way, which is why for years I have called uh, called out Republicans, uh, you know, when they claim, though, we're against big government. No, they are in favor of big government. They are in favor of the biggest government there is the biggest the government that can tell an 11 year old she must bear the child of her uncle. Back to the Obamas. Under the court's uh, logic, state legislatures could dictate that women carry every pregnancy to term, no matter how early it is and no matter what circumstances led to it, even rape or incest. The consequences of this decision would be a blow not just to women, but to all of us who believe that in a free society, there are limits to how much the government can encroach on our personal lives. And this decision is unlikely to significantly reduce Abortions, which have been steadily going down over the past several decades, thanks in large part to better access to contraception and education. Instead, as we've already begun to see in states with restrictive abortion laws, those women with means would simply travel to states where abortion remains legal and safe. Meanwhile, those without enough money or access to transportation or ability to take off from a school or work would face the same circumstances most women faced before Roe, desperately seeking out illegal abortions that inevitably pose grave risk to their health, to their future ability to bear children, and yes, sometimes to their very lives. Now, you may have seen this uh, quoted quite a bit over the past couple of days since this disturbing news broke. And apologies that I don't know who is responsible for the original quote, but it, it it is said... You cannot ban abortion. You can only ban legal abortion. Very true. Uh, The Obama's right. That's a result none of us should want, but it should serve as a powerful reminder of the central role the courts play in protecting our rights and of the fact that elections have consequences. That's something you've said once or twice before, Desiree. Yes, I believe I have. 
A clear majority, they write, of Americans support Roe, yet we recognize that while many are angry and frustrated by this report, some of, uh, some of those who support Roe may feel helpless and instinctively turn back to their work or their families or their daily tasks, telling themselves that because this outcome may have been predictable, there's nothing any of us can do. If that's you, we ask you, the Obamas do, as do I, to think about the college student waking up after her date forced her into unprotected sex. Think about the couple that tried to have children for years who are without any options when faced with the tragic reality of an unviable pregnancy. Think of any of the hundreds of thousands of women each year who deserve the dignity and freedom of making a decision that is right for their bodies and their circumstances. You may be one of those people, or you may know some of them by name. If you don't, ask yourself if you know everyone's whole story. But we're not asking you, they write, to just think about these people. We're asking you to join with the activists who have been sounding the alarm on this issue for years and to act. Stand with them at a local protest. Volunteer with them on a campaign. Join with them in urging Congress to codify Roe into law and vote alongside them on or before November 8th this year and in every other election. Because in the end, they write, if we want judges who will protect all and not just some of our rights, then we've got to elect officials committed to doing the same. That's the statement from Barack and Michelle Obama in response to the leaked draft of Justice Sam Alito's opinion that would and perhaps will I'd say most likely will, at this point, overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade constitutional right, the constitutional freedom of reproductive rights in the United States. One thing I have not heard anybody say um, is the Ninth Amendment. You know, the Ninth Amendment says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Hmm. So it's it's a pretty big umbrella there that all of these rights fall under. And one would think that bodily integrity, bodily sovereignty, you own your own body, would be one of those. Yeah, well, that's what you would think, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> Silly you. Uh, now, for what it's worth, uh, and I guess we will find out in a few days, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced today that a vote will be held next week in the U.S. Senate to codify Roe and the right to reproductive freedom into law. All week we've seen Republicans try to duck, dodge, and dip from their responsibility for bringing Roe to the brink of total repeal. This is about to change. Next week... The U.S. Senate is going to vote on legislation to codify a woman's right to seek an abortion into federal law. I intend to file cloture on this vital legislation Monday, which would set up a vote for Wednesday. Now, uh, that vote will happen. That vote will most likely be blocked by Republicans. Uh, they will, uh, Democrats will fall short of the 60 votes needed to advance past a filibuster in the Senate. As the New York Times report, er, reports uh, today, it, all, it also appears to lack even the simple majority that it would need to pass the 50-50 Senate, given that Senator Joe Manchin 
of West Virginia opposes abortion rights, and he voted against bringing up a nearly identical measure in February. He's shown no signs that he has shifted his position. Even if Manchin did change his mind on the bill, he has adamantly opposed altering Senate rules to eliminate the filibuster, leaving Democrats short of the 50 votes that they would need in order to do so, in order to get rid of the filibuster to protect this right and get their measure past a Republican blockade. It's not just Senator Manchin, sadly. It's also, yes, once again, Kirsten Cinema. So Manchin told reporters that the filibuster is a protection of democracy, even though he allowed the filibuster to be used to block the Freedom to Vote Act, which actually was written to protect democracy and the ability for all Americans to vote and to have their votes counted as cast. And Kirsten Cinema, who says she at least is supportive of abortion rights, her spokesperson said that her views on preserving the filibuster are currently unchanged. And uh, she pointed to seven Senate votes where a 60 vote threshold ultimately protected abortion rights in the past. True. But now that same filibuster is being used to deny abortion rights, not to protect them. Her spokesperson said protections in the Senate safeguarding against erosion of women's access to health care have been used half a dozen times in the past 10 years and more important and are more important now than ever. Well, these correct. Now those protections are being used to undermine women's access to health care. If you believe that's important, what are you going to do about it, Kirsten? Uh, she said a woman's health care choices should be between her, her family and her doctor. Overturning Roe v. Wade endangers the health and well-being of women in Arizona and across America. Yes, it does. But now you're voting to block women's health care choices between her family and her doctor. I can't even imagine what must be going on in this lady's brain at this point. Anyway, okay, much more on all of this, no doubt, uh, unfortunately, in the days of uh, days ahead. But I want to take a quick break here. Uh, earlier today in the U.S. Senate, in the Senate Budget Committee chaired by Bernie Sanders, they held a hearing on unions and the ability for the federal government to block federal contracts that go to non-unionized corporations, you know, like Amazon. Let's take a quick break here. We will come back with something uh, related that I think we can find at least a bit of encouragement in these days. I don't know about you, but I could use it. As bad as everything else is, working men and women are taking action now to unionize across the country in a way that we have not seen in decades in this country. Jordan Zacharin of Progress Report and of A More Perfect Union Joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. No, 
you're tired, I know you're hurting I know you broke down to the bone But your bills are paying and the smiling faces Waiting on you at home It ain't always easy It ain't ever like you planned all But man, ain't it working, working man Yeah and the working woman, too. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, there is no escaping it. The news of late is grim and seemingly grimmer with each passing day of late. Stock market tumbling, inflation and interest rates up. We just officially, anyway, surpassed 1 million COVID deaths in the U.S., 15 million worldwide by some counts as new variants are beginning to surge again in the U.S. and federal spending on the pandemic is beginning to dry up. See, told you everything was fantastic. Of course, there's the continuing war in Ukraine just to make things worse. The likelihood that Roe v. Wade's 50-year protections um, for women to have the, uh, uh, the right to reproductive freedoms may soon be ended entirely by the GOP's stolen and packed Supreme Court as the forces of right-wing authoritarianism rise in the U.S. and we head toward a midterm election where history, in any event, suggests Democrats will take a beating and potentially lose majority control of both chambers of Congress. I'm not yet sold on that, but that's what history tells us. As noted, grim. No way around it. But with that in mind... There is at least one area of good news, I think, that is being vastly underreported. Not surprising in truth, given the list that I just prattled through, but the good news is there nonetheless. Unemployment is down to pre-pandemic levels. Wages are rising for working class folks for the first time in decades. And more importantly here, Workers are organizing for collective bargaining rights against some of the world's largest and most powerful corporations. And they are having success. How much success? Well, earlier this week in his Progress Report newsletter, journalist Jordan Zacharin published a piece headlined A May Day of Momentum. Well, that sounds encouraging. He opens this way. In many parts of the world on Sunday, folks were celebrating May Day, otherwise known as International Workers Day. It's a holiday which began here in the U.S., established in 1886 as a commemoration of the workers that were killed in Chicago while striking for a shorter workday during what became known as the Haymarket Affair. It's become a day of solidarity for workers in countries around the world, though May Day has never been formally recognized in the U.S. Shocking, I know, writes Zacharin. Instead, the working class that undergirds our economy and society is ostensibly recognized on Labor Day. Unfortunately, that celebration, like everything else in this country, has become co-opted by big sales events at our remaining malls and retailers, which in turn, like everything else in this country, has only put further stress on low-wage workers to serve everyone else. Ironic, ironic, ain't it? Labor unions have uh, long celebrated May Day anyway, and this year a re-energized and resurgent labor movement is giving new light to both the holiday and its history. Parades and rallies were held in cities nationwide centering on organizing workers at big corporations such as Amazon and Starbucks. 
as well as the immigrants that continue to perform our economy's most punishing and thankless jobs, notes Zacharin. Joining me now is Jordan Zacharin, publisher of the Progress Report newsletter, previously known as Progressives Everywhere, which covers grassroots activism, progressive politics, and the stories that the national media ignores. He describes it as journalism with a point of view, which, of course, all good journalism is, at least if the journalist is clear about his or her viewpoint. And uh, it also includes, quote, fact-based advocacy and the voices of people organizing on the ground. Sounds good to me. Oh, I, uh, I really hope he, uh, by the way, speaks to right-wingers at diners in Nebraska to find out why they still love Donald Trump so much. <sighs> Jordan is also a contributor to the More Perfect Union website, which, as they note there, is, quote, helping working people to be seen and heard in media coverage. Now there's an idea. Jordan Zacharin, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the very um, generous biography and uh, <laughs> the praise. I appreciate it. Well, listen, no, no pressure. Uh, with all the grim news uh, this week, I hope you're bringing us something to sort of help us all climb back in from the window ledge that we're all standing on right around now. Uh, let's start uh, here, of course, with Amazon. Uh, several weeks ago, a big Amazon facility on Staten Island celebrated a huge victory uh, for labor as the first to vote to organize as a union. Gothamist reports this week the organizers shocked the world in early April when their $200,000 crowdfunded campaign bested one of the world's most powerful companies and formed Amazon's first unionized warehouse in the U.S. Now, before we get to the results of a second vote for unionization at a smaller Amazon facility, also in Staten Island there uh, this week. How important, uh, Jordan, was that first Amazon victory for workers there and elsewhere at other companies, as you see it? Well, I think when Gotham said shock the world, I mean, that is exactly that. And uh, in a good way, you know, uh, Amazon has spent millions and millions of dollars to defeat two union drives in Bessemer, Alabama, and is known as just an unbelievably abusive employer with 150% turnover rate on the warehouses. Uh, and the, the wages they advertise often don't, and the benefits they advertise often don't really materialize for people because they quit so quickly or get fired. Uh, and, you know, it's really the modern day sweatshop and writ large is really everywhere. And, you know, I'm sure you listeners don't need me to tell you that. And the campaign they, they ran in Staten Island was the same sort of thing they did at Bessemer and, you know, just in terms of just whether it's firing workers or intimidating workers or forcing them to do these long, long meetings. It's really just the, the rule book, just the handbook, the anti-union, the union-busting handbook, and the fact mm -hmm. that these folks who had no money, I mean, their, their union hall was a bus stop uh, in outside the warehouse in Staten Island over there. It, it was really incredible. I think it shows that these things are possible if people stick together and have the ability to, you know, organize from the inside. You know, they had a, an agreement in December that allowed them to go do that, thanks to the NLRB. And, you know, it showed that, you know, uh, all the talking points against unions can fail if you have workers who are from that place doing the actual hard work. Well, uh, it does. Uh, that said, uh, Jordan, on Monday, the effort to unionize the second warehouse at the uh, Amazon Staten Island campus apparently failed, according to a preliminary vote counted by the uh, National Labor Relations Board out of uh, about 1,500 employees eligible to vote at that, um, at that second uh, location. 
just under a thousand ballots were cast. Three hundred and eighty voted yes. Six hundred and eighteen voted no. Uh, according to the NLRB tally, uh, 38% of workers voted to support the union compared to 50 in the second vote compared to 55% in that first union election last month. What happened there? Why the huge success at one facility, but the failure just weeks later at another Amazon plant in the in the very same area? You know, it, it's you know, it's hard for me to say because I'm not in the facility, but there's a couple of things to speak with workers and who are organizing. You know. It was a surprise to everyone that they won JFK, right? And that was called JFK 8, the first facility. It was a surprise. Mm-hmm. No one expected them, to, expected them to, except maybe they did. And, you know, once that happened, you know, Amazon was caught sleeping, and they wouldn't be caught sleeping again. You know, we had reporters there outside for multiple weeks being kicked out constantly of the parking lot at, at midnight. You know, they, they had security. They had union busting uh, folks out there in full force. You know, th- these are they're, they're scary people. And I think another, another aspect is, uh, underreported that these were part-time workers at the second facility uh, called LDJ5, whereas the first facility they were full, mostly full-time workers. And the difference there is that generally full-time workers are more amenable to having a union because more of their living is based on working at this facility. Mm. And so oftentimes part-time workers are not as interested or don't necessarily want to go through the what is often you know, emotional and physical labor to try and organize and get things done and deal with a company that's very vengeful. So mm. You know, I don't think it's. I don't think the first one is, uh, you know, in any way a fluke. I don't think it was, you know, delegitimized by the law the second time around. But I think it shows that, you know, there is there are certain conditions that need to be there for things to work out and for people to, you know, if, if a union was election, uh, if a union election, if companies could do union elections the way um, we do uh, elections in the United States generally, you know, it'd be unbelievable. The amount of voter interference, the amount of intimidation. It's not a democracy. In a workplace, even a workplace democracy, and I think that's an important thing to remember. These were not people who just went out and voted and had no, you know, um, you know had no problem uh, going to do so. Imagine like your boss standing outside the voting booth yelling at you to vote for one guy instead of the other. Who do you think you're going to vote for? Right, exactly. And in theory, this is supposed to be illegal. As a matter of fact, that election, that second election, that also failed in uh, in Bessemer down in Alabama. They had that second election because. The National Labor Relations Board found that Amazon cheated on the first one, so they called this second election. There was a uh, a hearing on Thursday in the U.S. Senate, uh, in the Senate Budget Committee, chaired by Bernie Sanders. Uh, and Chris Smalls, who's the president of the Amazon Labor Union, who, who uh, had that great success uh, last month in organizing that first facility, he testified uh, before the committee, and he noted the fact that uh, these companies apparently are just able to, you know, break the law at at, at will during these elections uh, that they hold. Here's a small clip from Chris Small's testimony. To me, it just sounds like the corporations have the control and they control whatever they want. They break the law to get away with it. They know that already, that breaking the law during these election campaigns won't be resolved during the election campaigns. So they purposely continue to break the law. 
I mean, in Bessemer, where they uh, broke the law and they had to have a second election, there was a big deal. They had a second election and they were able to uh, win that. Uh, the uh, company was able to win that second election because there was actually no real penalties brought against the companies. Do I understand that correctly, that there's no real penalty for violating the law during these union elections? Yeah, there really is none, and that's why they don't have any problem doing it. You know, if you imagine if you keep breaking the law in real life, you end up in prison. Mm -hmm. You end up paying gigantic fines, you know, and so you're chastened to not do it again. But in because the NLRB has been so defanged, really all they can do is start a new election and uh, a, year, a year later and have them say, all right, we're going to do it right this time. And then they just don't do it right, and they'll have another election. Mm. And you keep going and going and going <laughs> until you break the will of the workers who have been organizing. A lot of them leave, you know, especially in a place like Amazon where there's so much turnover. And they can, you know, whatever, the, there's not even a fine. If you fire a worker illegally, at most, you know, you can, you owe them, like, back pay, minus what they've made at other jobs. You know, mm. And so it's really not... Um, there are no penalties. There's no reason for a company as rich as Amazon to not to not just do whatever they can to get rid of the unions. And and that was part of what Bernie Sanders was talking about in his hearings today. His hearings were all about not giving federal contracts to union busting companies mm -hmm. led off by Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that that would be a big penalty, right? That would be something that oh look, uh, Amazon tries to get like a billion dollars a year in government subsidies. That's a big penalty. Whereas you know saying all right, you got to hire this person uh, in two years hire this person back two years later, and yet you can also argue over it for the next two years in court. Uh, that is not uh, a disincentive. Mm. No, it's it's not. And is that, by the way, is that something that would be built into the uh, into the PRO Act uh, the, the, for uh, the Union Act that they're trying to get passed in, in Congress? Or is that something that uh, can be done at the executive level? Can Joe Biden, uh, as an executive action, say that, you know, we will not give uh, contracts to uh, anti-union shops like Amazon? Uh, yeah, I mean, they certainly could. Uh, executive could say, look, well, the government that does these contracts will not give out, uh, you know, the federal government will not work with union busters, right? Mm -hmm. That's something they can say. Uh, they had an executive order saying, you know, creating a minimum wage, you know, for um, federal contractors, and he was able to do that, and it, it was upheld, uh, upheld by the courts. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, he can do that. Uh, they can't. The PRO Act would uh, create penalties that the that the president could not do on his own. Mm -hmm. uh, the product would definitely make it harder to stop unionizing workers. And so that's something Congress will have to do. I mean, they don't want to do anything right now, so uh, who knows if that's going to ever happen. But uh, certainly President Biden could decide, you know, we're not going to contract to union busters. And I'm sure they would be sued, but, you know, I think it's well within his rights. And now, uh, of course, this conversation was supposed to uh, somewhat cheer us up, <laughs> given everything else that's going on. So uh, back to the progress that is being made. It's not just at Amazon, of course, you know, where this is happening. Uh, huge and I, and I think hugely underreported uh, news about progress happening at Starbucks as well. Jordan Zachron, you wrote earlier this week that, uh, quote, over the past week alone, workers at more than a dozen Starbucks locations have won their NLRB elections, bringing the total number of unionized stores to 44 at this point. So great news there. But of course, there are like thousands, if not tens of thousands of Starbucks shops around the country. Does this need to be a store by store effort to unionize? Or is there a way for all the workers at all the Starbucks to sort of vote all at once, as far as you know? Uh, you know, it is... It is, we'll be store by store, and I think that's important. You know, it's, there's like 
9,000 stores in the United States, and I think it's a little over 50 have voted to unionize. There are 200 more that have uh, signed union cards and gotten their they're waiting their election dates, and many more, I can say, are, are waiting to go get those union cards signed and waiting to see what happens with the contract. And, you know, they cannot all vote as one, and that's actually to the advantage of the stores, of the store units. Mm. Yeah. Well, the larger the unit, it's often, you know, Actually, one thing I can tell you this is one thing that happened early on in the Starbucks unionization campaign, and this is what stopped them from having any elections from uh, September when they declared till uh, late November, was Starbucks wanted an entire region. So let's say all of Buffalo, where it started. Every mm-hmm. store in Buffalo would vote together. Mm-hmm. And the one that said, no, we want to do it store by store, because the larger the number of stores there are, mm-hmm. the easier it is for Starbucks to, you know, turn entire stores against, entire places against unionizing. Mm-hmm. So it's a much easier for them to do small units, small tight-knit units of people that stick together. Mm, you know, interesting. Like that done a lot of damage to fire people, and that's, that's something that um, you know, really angers the workers. And there's definitely a, um, you know, there, there's definitely a national movement now with Starbucks workers, and they work together store by store. But yeah, it is better for them to do store by store. The only question is what kind of contracts can they get doing it that way. Uh, in other uh, pro-union news here, several months ago, uh, nearly 1,000 workers at Kellogg's went out on strike. And recently, The Intercept published some audio from uh, some of the conversations that took place, apparently, between its hired union-busting attorneys and, and consultant thugs. And um, the audio captured the vice president for labor relations at Kellogg's, a guy by the name of Ken Hurley, describing union leadership as, quote, behaving more like terrorists, terrorists than partners. Terrorists? Really? Uh, your response <laughs> as, as someone who covered the, uh, I think it was a 10-week strike of the workers in Michigan very closely uh, over at More Perfect Union, your response to uh, Ken Hurley describing union organizers as terrorists? You know, it's really funny you know, that, that Ken Hurley was very upset with More um, the Union, which is where I work. I'm a producer there. And, uh, he was very upset, and really all we did was bring a camera to the to the picket line, right? We brought a camera, and we published what the workers were saying, and you know, sometimes I may or may not have received leaks from different places. It may mm-hmm. not have been from workers. It may have been from other people. I can't say. Um, and really, that is, uh, there was a variety of sources. And, mm-hmm. you know, just some contracts and internal communication, stuff that kind of exposed how little they cared for the people working there. And I think that you know, when they say terrorists, I think what they hate is the fact that they are being questioned for the first time. They, for the first time in generations, you know, the Kellogg's mm. has been sending jobs overseas for a long time now, you know, in Mexico and other places, and they are finally having pushback. You know, the union has been under the under the gun for a very long time, and finally, you know, people are fed up and actually overruled the, uh, the international union for a while to stay on the picket line. Um, Ken Hurley was upset that someone went and tried to video um, video record them at negotiation meetings. That wasn't even us. I'll take credit for it if you want. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's Ken Hurley. You know, he, he doesn't like the idea that he's been questioned and they've been pushed and they've had to justify themselves. And I think that's really telling. And that's how a lot of executives feel about you know what's going on. What they're standing up for themselves. Yeah, they're asking for better pay and better wages. Better pay and better wages. How dare they, terrorists? Now, there's been a, a, an interesting, um, some interesting progress in the airline industry of late uh, with Delta, the only major airline apparently without a unionized flight uh, attendant crew. 
Now uh, they are threatening to unionize uh, over there at Delta, as I understand it. And the threat alone, apparently, has led to concessions from Delta, leading them to pay uh, to agree to pay flight attendants for the time that they spend boarding uh, during boarding and deplaning, not only while while the planes are in the air, which I had no idea they were not paid for already. I sort of assumed that they were paid uh, from when they, you know, have to show up at work. I don't know where I would get such an idea. But the, the change alone amounts to about four thousand dollars a year increase in annual salaries for these flight attendants. Is, is, is that a matter of, of not paying attendance while planes are at the gate? Is that, a, is that a standard thing for all flight attendants, or is that just something that Delta gets away with because they're not a union shop? You know, I can't speak for every, you know, I can't speak for every single uh, flight attendant, every single airline, but it is, it's generally, it's weird, to, and you said you, you would have thought that they were, you know, working, they were being paid while they were working, they were on the job. Yeah. It is very, it is very um, remarkable to see how many places are like that, right? You know, so many places don't like to clock in right away to get there early. People at Starbucks have been in trouble for that, even though they've been required to get there early. It's, you know, if we see, like, Uber drivers, right? They don't get paid if they don't have someone in the car, even though driving around is a big part of it. They're right. going to get them. Right. And so I think what we're discovering is that so many people deal with this and deal with this dignity, and it's not public and it's not spoken about because, honestly, you know, folks just assume that they're being treated fairly, right? right? And, you know, you would think that that's the way it works. You put faith in the company that acts like it really cares about its workers and, you know, that they, they you know, they show that they care about them. They, they announce they're going to pay for them to have health insurance or, you know, be able to go get care and, you know, accept that most people are contractors and can't get it. You know, mm-hmm. so we're, we're constantly finding that the conditions are even worse than we expect. Mm-hmm. And that's depressing. Like you said, this is a happy news element. People are starting to stand up and, you know, talk out. And mm-hmm. I think that one strike really galvanizes another, right? We saw people, and like you mentioned, Kellogg, they were galvanized by people at Street Away and Abisco standing up and walking out. And mm-hmm. that industry really started, you know, they'd already organized a really demanding better. And we saw that, you know, every, every single company got a better contract. Mm-hmm. And so, you're right, it's all these things that we did not expect, but as they're being exposed, people are saying, oh, yeah, me too, geez, <laughs> and standing up. Well, uh, do you suppose that uh, concession by Delta will now uh, be enough, you know, to, yeah, pay your workers when they show up to work, uh, that that will be enough to to prevent the uh, move toward unionization there? Or do you expect they're still going to try to try to organize at Delta? Well, you know, I think they're still going to try to organize. I don't think the union's going to say no. And I think here's the thing. They'll give these concessions and it shows the power of the union. Right. Delta wasn't going to go just change that right, before this happens, and Starbucks is raising its wages. We're going to do that before the unionization campaign happens. Of course, Starbucks, uh, Howard Schultz, they can't give the increased wages and benefits to people who are unionizing, and that's wrong, as we reported yesterday. That's actually a violation of federal law to say so. So they're, they're going to try and pit workers it's, against so one so another. So explain that. George, uh, explain that again. What, what He said yeah. what yesterday? That it, it, he would... He, uh, say that again. <laughs> I had a trouble understanding. <laughs> so... So Howard Schultz in an investor call yesterday or on Tuesday, uh-huh. he, it was on Tuesday actually, he said that they are raising wages, that they're going to give better benefits, they're going to do all these sorts of things for workers, but only those who are not either in a union, you know, that they voted to unionize, or workers who are organizing a union. And he said it's against federal law for him to to offer those benefits to people who are going to be in contract negotiations. So the you know, we spoke to experts and yeah. that. The, so the, the CEO of Starbucks is uh, saying, 
on an investor call, oh, we'll, we'll increase uh, uh, worker pay, we'll increase conditions, but not for those who are uh, unionized or trying to organize a union? Yeah, they said basically it's against the law for them to offer these benefits, which is partly true, as we reported yesterday, you know, actually what they need to do is if you're not under contract, you, uh-huh. you know, you're still working at all you, so you're, you should be eligible. And if you are under contract, they or in your negotiations, they need to offer that to you as well. You can reject it, uh, but, you know, unions don't ask for less money <laughs> as, a, as a mm-hmm. general rule. And so it's actually, uh, they filed an unfair labor practice against Howard, uh, Howard Schultz and Starbucks for even saying that. Wow. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that's broken with workers and they say, you know, uh, you know, people who are interested in unionizing say, you know, maybe let's wait until the new wages go into effect in September. And so it creates a chill. Um, and so it, it's really a double-edged sword. Yes, like they force them to do it, but also it's um, you know, making things more uh, difficult for unionizing workers. Now, uh, very quickly, I've got uh, two more points I want to ask you about, uh, Jordan, Zacharin. Uh, you report that uh, new union election filings are now soaring across the country and that major new battlefields, battle, uh, battlefronts lie ahead. Uh, where, where do you see those uh, new battlefronts uh, and, and what do you attribute this uh, new momentum in organized labor to after so many years of decline in unions at both uh, corporate shops and government agencies? Well, you know, I think that you, know, you can, people say that the great labor market is a tight labor market. There's opportunities for people to switch jobs to make more money. They have what they call the great resignation that follows, of course, was uh, following the quote-unquote labor shortage. Mm-hmm. It's really just people not wanting to work for crappy wages. Um, so I think it's a mix of things, right? This is a tighter labor market. People feel like they can get better. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've reached this point where there's just so much wealth concentrated at the very top. Yeah. People, and, you know, so few companies, right? There's so many companies, you know, there's so much monopolies right now. There's so many monopolies right now that, you know, so many people are resentful of these big billionaires that run their corporations that they're willing to walk out, they're willing to stand up, and frankly, a lot of it is very young people, right? People who are younger and have less to lose, right? Either they don't have mortgages because they can't afford it. You know, I, I don't, I'm 35, but I don't have a house, you know, it's just too, or own an apartment, you know, it's too expensive. And there's people that, you know, are stuck with student loans that are going to keep them down and out for a very long time, and so not to say that they're unafraid. You know, I know people have lost their jobs for taking a stand in the union, uh, mm-hmm. in the union fight, and now being, you know, they're devastated. they got to find a way to pay rent. But they are really sick of it, and I think the more that people start to organize, the more it galvanizes others. And it, it really is a spark that catches. And, you know, you realize that there's only, you know, it's not that hard to do just in terms of filing for it. You know, and I, people, the Starbucks people are educating one another. And it's been really nice to see and really inspiring. And, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to win contracts, but certainly more public approval for unions, more coverage for unions than there, have been in the, there has been in a very long time. Uh, finally, Jordan Zacharin with uh, Joe Biden building uh, uh, requirements for union contracts into stuff like uh, the infrastructure bill and the stalled and or dead build back better effort. Thanks to Joe Manchin and a video that he put out in support of, I believe it was uh, during the uh, Kellogg's uh, strike for the for the uh, pro act and so forth. Uh, Biden has been described as the most pro-union president ever, or at least since FDR. Now, I realize that's a pretty low bar, even from uh, Democratic presidents, and I don't really know what your answer is going to be here, uh, You know, since I'm uh, hoping to end on an up note, but I don't know. Uh, your thoughts on Biden's support for union workers and, and the Democratic Party these days when it comes to their support for labor? Uh, you know, I think that, you know, 
know, it's like me saying, you know, that Biden's the best union president, president of the union since the FDR is like saying, like, I'm the best basketball player in my family. Um, <laughs> it's not the world's biggest men or accomplishment. But, you know, it's, he, he definitely, you give him credit, you know, we've been pushing and pushing, and he has unionizing workers to the White House today. You know, he met with Chris Small from Amazon, people from Starbucks, REI, and other places. Mm-hmm. So you got to give him credit for that. You know, there's only so much he can do on his own in terms of, you know, forcing that sort of stuff. Like I said, maybe an executive order, may, not giving contracts to union busters. There would be a lot of contract or companies to get contracts at that point. But uh, there's certainly more he can do. But the NLRB, you got to say Jennifer Bruzzo is the general counsel for the NLRB, has been pushing to change the rules a lot for workers, make it a lot easier for them to get unions, mm-hmm. going, really going after corporations that have been union busting. And, you know, it's a grinding slow process because for years and years, decades really, labor law has been ground down. There are a few precedents left to uh, help workers. But you got to say, like, other than passing the PRO Act, and other than you know, doing these big legislative things that just his, you know, his caucus won't do, you know, Biden has been good. And, you know, he's, I, I certainly think that over the next bunch of months, he needs to probably embrace labor unions and uh, the class battle more than ever for his, uh, for hopefully for his party to do, you know, not get creamed in the midterms. But, you know, definitely got to give him credit. Uh, you know, like I said, it's not the world's highest bar, you said, but right. uh, credit we're going to do. Well, we'll take what we can get these days in these uh, very grim days. Jordan Zacharin, he's publisher of the Progress Report newsletter. I strongly urge you to uh, sign up, uh, subscribe for that newsletter. Uh, He he covers some really important stuff for progressives uh, that you need to know about. You can sign up at progressreport.substack.com. You can also follow him on the Twitters at Jordan Zacharin. He's also uh, a contributor to More Perfect Union, which you can find on Twitter at More Perfect US and on the web at perfectunion.us. Jordan Zacharin, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope to speak to you again in the future. All right. Really appreciate it, Brad. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Okay, let's uh, take a quick break. And I apologize for the uh, quality of his uh, phone audio there. I hope you could get most of what he had to say. Because he's really doing some uh, terrific work in covering all of this at his uh, at his progress report. Again, progressreport.substack.com. Uh, and not just, by the way, on labor, but on all things having to do with progressives. That's yeah. why yes, he used to call good. it progressives everywhere. <laughs> yes, it's a good it's a very good newsletter. All right. Quick break. And we are back with, uh, oh, a related topic, I hate to say. And. If, if time, maybe some listener mail. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Jordan Zacharin, uh, my guest, mentioned there during our conversation that workers are really, really ticked off right now, particularly at companies which hold monopolies so they don't think they need to treat their workers well and, oh, yeah. and so forth. Well, uh, frankly, stories like this should tick everyone off, particularly those who, uh, for some reason, Blame folks like Joe Biden and the Democrats for inflation. 
which is caused largely by post-pandemic corporate profiteering and the price is uh, rising at the gas pump. The, which is really the biggest single daily reminder for most folks of of inflation when they drive around and see those prices at the gas station. Which then also translate to consumer prices as well, because everything requires fossil fuels to get to you by right now. But the uh, problem, in fact, is a global one. It is, uh, you know, not the fault of the Democrats or Joe Biden, and it's certainly exacerbated by Russia's war on Ukraine now. But if you really want to know who to really blame, it is the companies and their CEOs for raising prices, particularly when it comes to gas prices. The price of gas is not going up because of a, of a shortage, at least not for the most part. It is going up as much as it is because the big oil CEOs want it to go up. They are making record profits, and you are paying the price. This out today from the BBC, oil giant Shell made $9.13 billion in profits in the first three months of the year. That is nearly triple its $3.2 billion profit it announced for the same period last year. That's not sales. That is profits. That is pure profits. And that is due to them raising the cost for you at the pump. They don't need to, but they are doing it. Now, the firm claims that pulling out of Russian oil and gas because of the Ukraine conflict had cost it $3.9 billion. Okay, but they still made $9.13 billion in profits, its highest ever quarterly profit. On Tuesday, rival BP also reported a sharp rise in profits. And Des, I think you said, was it Chevron? Yes, uh, Chevron. Also? Yeah. Chevron also had a blockbuster first quarter yeah, profits. And, and, and at the same time right now, they are fighting a, a labor strike at their Richmond, California refinery and calling out the local cops, paying contracts to the local cops to watch over so-called this uh, union strike outside their refinery. That's so with their profits and the workers with their are, record profits. Yeah, and, and the workers are it. striking for higher wages and safer conditions. But they're saying, no, we can't afford to pay you that. I can't imagine why workers are so ticked off, as uh, Zacharin told, told us. Uh, oil prices were already rising before the Ukraine war as economies started to recover from the COVID pandemic, the BBC notes. Shell executive, uh, Chief Executive Ben Van Buren said the war in Ukraine has caused, quote, significant disruption to global energy markets. The impacts of this uncertainty and the higher cost that comes with it are being felt far and wide. Yeah, but apparently not for Shell. They're not feeling it. They are doing better than ever. I believe we have also, uh, Shell's rival, BP, also Total Energies. They've also reported a sharp rise in profits. Norway's Equinor, which supplies a quarter of the UK's gas, also posted record earnings on Wednesday. And yes, we've noted that ExxonMobil is once again the world's most profitable corporation, and they are once again making record profits as well. Even as people are, for some reason, blaming folks like Joe Biden for the industry's profiteering after the pandemic and during a war that has shrunk the oil market in hopes of starving the deadly Russian war machine. But the company CEOs, they don't care. Do they have no shame at all? Correct. They have no <laughs> shame at all. I'm afraid that question answers itself. All right. One more. Uh, an email um, 
a bit of interesting context that I missed out on our previous uh, broadcast while I was reporting on Trump's former Defense Secretary Mark Esper's new memoir. He reports that Trump actually wondered why couldn't the government just simply shoot BLM protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets during demonstrations after the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, we reported that story on um, about uh, Trump wanting to shoot protesters. We reported the story on May 4, which, as I overlooked, was actually a critical day in a related story some 53 years ago, as listener Perry in New Jersey alerted me last night with an email to bradcast at bradblog.com. Uh, Perry writes on shooting protesters, uh, Hey, Brad, just wanted to point out that May 4 was the anniversary of Kent State. You and Desi, he says, do a great job. Thanks. Peace, Perry in New Jersey. Well, thank you, uh, Perry, for pointing that out. Yeah, Kent State University on May 4, 1970, the Kent State Massacre, sometimes known apparently as the May 4 Massacre, killed four students, injured nine when the Ohio National Guard was ordered to open fire on a peaceful rally, a peace rally at the university uh, there in opposition to the expansion of the Vietnam War by U.S. military forces. The incident marked the first time that a student had been killed in an anti-war gathering in U.S. history. And of course, apparently it was something that Donald Trump would have liked to repeat all over the country as folks demonstrated against the murder of a black man in Minneapolis by police. And by the way, also related, relatedly, on Thursday after we got off air, the cop who killed Floyd uh, by uh, Derek Chauvin uh, by kneeling on, his, on Floyd's neck and back for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Chauvin accepted a plea deal after pleading guilty to federal charges for violating Chau uh, uh, George Floyd's civil rights. After he had months earlier pleaded not guilty, Chauvin will now be sentenced to 20 to 25 years in prison on those charges. That sentence will be served concurrently with the 22 and a half year sentence tied to his murder conviction at the state level last year, which he's trying to uh, over, uh, overturn on appeal. Even if he's successful in that appeal, however, he will remain in prison under these federal charges. All right, we have to get out. My thanks to my guest, Jordan Zacharin of Progress Report, to Desi Doyen, my producer, and yep. to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You too can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. Until we meet again, we'll see you there. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.